Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. Hello, it's Saturday, and this is The Saturday Show. And yesterday on The Friday Show... Although, given the vagaries, uh, let's just say opportunities of podcasting and time shifting, who knows what your Friday was or what your Saturday is or will be. Anyway, if you listen to all the shows in order and take notes, you will note that yesterday I had on the co-creators of Poker Face, the Zuckermans. But before that interview, years ago, in 2015, in fact, I interviewed Leslie Hedlund, who had just come out with a pretty interesting kind of anti-rom-com, and she would go on to direct, co-create Russian Doll, which was Natasha Leone's last series. So given the connection, Natasha Leone, co-creators, I thought I'd resurface and re-air that interview for you now. Plus, you will also hear a spiel I did from earlier in the week. The topic was East Palestine and the coverage thereof. I don't know if you want to say enjoy when it comes to a toxic fumes and a train derailment, but certainly about an interesting rom-com director, I shall say enjoy. Sleeping with other people. Your weekend plans? A bad idea? No, it's a new film. The director and writer is Leslie Headland. She's had an interesting career. She's a playwright. She wrote the update, I guess, of About Last Night. And now this movie starring Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie as two people who lost their virginity to each other, then reconnect after 12 years is out. Of all the gin joints. Jake. Yes. It's been, what, 12 years? The guy I lost my virginity to was at my sex addicts meeting. Were you just in that meeting? Oh, yeah. Had to get out of there, though. It was making me super horny. <laughs> hey, I'm on Facebook. Weird thing to say out loud. Hey, Leslie, how are you? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what's the advice you would give? You know, in the movie, Alison Brie's character obviously is feeling this tension. She doesn't, but it's clear that she's in this bad relationship with the Adam Scott doctor character. Or a non relationship, right. I would say. Yeah. So what she does is she goes abstinent because I guess either she figures cold turkey is the way we deal with all addictions and she's in this addiction program, or maybe it's because society gives you the message hey, maybe you have been doing it wrong. But what would your advice be? Because it doesn't seem like abstinence is the right way. No, Just I think she's. The abstinence, the five. I think she's. Plan? I think she's a bit sexually anorexic, Lane's which is character. a phrase that Natasha Leone. Yeah, yeah, yeah talks which about. is a phrase that I found out about doing my research on sex addiction and love addiction, and it was something when I heard it, I was like, oh, I really relate with that. Like, mm -hmm. I've definitely gone through periods of just like not dating and not having sex, which I don't think is a good idea. I think it's a good idea for Lainey because she has Jake as like a sort of anchor to the rest of the world, and she's getting her, she's sort of siphoning her emotional sustenance from that relationship. But I don't think that, that, that cutting yourself off completely. The thing that I would pose to women, especially if you're hung up on a non-relationship, meaning like you're having sex with a guy who 
does not care about you, which I would say is probably 50% of women listening to this podcast right now. If they're not, you know, our demo. Yeah. 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 It's like (laughs) if it's not a commit, if you're not in a committed relationship, you're probably in a non relationship, which means you're texting and you're wondering what the texts mean. And then you're fucking and then you're going back to texting. You probably may not even like at least that was my experience in the dating world. It was either I was either in with somebody very, very clearly, like we were going out together as mm-hmm. a couple, or I was in a weird text sex, like having sex relationship where the emotional intimacy was completely not there. And I think that my suggestion would be like, where are you getting emotional intimacy in your life? And your girlfriends are not enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you, you like, are you having it with yourself? Are you having it with male friends? Are you having it with you know, a therapist or, you know, I don't know, any, you know, whatever it is that you pick up for yourself. I don't know if I really have any good advice, to be honest, now that I'm saying it out loud. (laughs) I just think it's funny because I feel like I was brought up with this sort of post-feminism wave of like, it's just a bodily function. You know what I mean? Like, just have sex. Just get rid of the energy. I just don't, my personal experience is that that's not the case. Right. It could be gendered. It could be etiquette. But like, I just personally do not have sex without time traveling with somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like I just, like whether it's with myself and I really don't give a fuck about that person, that's totally possible. It's possible that like I'm having sex with them and I'm having sex with like a completely different person than they actually are. That Adam Scott at Alison Brie relationship is something that I was actually going through when I wrote the movie was mm-hmm. that I was actually separating myself from this person and sort of trying to figure it out. So maybe my advice is write a movie about it. Maybe that's maybe that's the best <laughs> advice I can give is like write a fucking yeah. television series and pitch it to Amazon or because movies if, are dead. If you so. want to cut out the middleman of the movie, just get Alison Brie to act out your problems. Or just get, that's, I that's mean, honestly, I got to say, I was on set. We were shooting that sex scene between her and Adam Scott. And I was thinking, this is a really elaborate way to work through heartbreak. You know what I mean? Like everyone's like, because it's almost like a porn shoot. Like when you're as detailed as we were about everything with like the practicals coming on during it and like, you know, like all of it happening in basically one take. And then that was a set. So we're like flyaway walls are happening so that the camera can move and like all this stuff. And it's like and I was just I was a little bit like this is a really weird way to deal with my shit. You know, (laughs) like I don't know if this is really like socially responsible of me, but. Is this what you want, Elaine? Yes. If I appointed you goddess of the rom-com, you could rewrite any of the rules. What would you keep and what would you throw out? I mean, to some extent, the movie is an exercise in that. Yeah, it's a little bit of an exercise in that. But I'd say say, um, one thing I'd love to get rid of is like the people in the rom-coms being the obstacles themselves, meaning like you're just dating the wrong guy. You know what I mean? Like I think it's different with Adam Scott's character in the film because I do, you know, first of all, he's played by Adam Scott, which helps, you know, like so you have a lot of humanity there, even regardless of the script not having it. Yeah, even though he's kind of a sociopath. Even though he's kind of a sociopath, (laughs) like even that's sort of like lovely, you know, in and of itself. But I think when I see like, the shrew. This guy just needs to get rid of. You know right. what I mean? And then he'd be okay. Like, or the woman's dating like a you know a macho guy who doesn't care about her, doesn't understand her job, or like whatever it is. It's like the idea that like there are wrong people and right people. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. I think is uh, is a not right, only right. is sort what, of a socially what's dangerous hard about, thing. What's hard about da- dating? The answer isn't bad people. Yes, exactly. Or maybe even if it is, that's not interesting By to write way, a movie about. The person, you want to critique society, not like individuals who are bad. Yeah, I mean yeah. like. Uh, you 
know, something that I did say to someone recently, and I don't know if it was like in a press thing or if it was, I said, be the person you want to date. Mm-hmm. Don't look for that person. <laughs> be that fucking person. Well, now you're dating a woman. So exactly. That, so you exactly. I was like, <laughs> I want to date like a powerful man who loves film and like does well in the world. Let me tell you, those guys are fucking dickheads. <laughs> like those guys are fucking assholes. So now I just became an asshole. <laughs> and now I'm dating a really nice chick, you know, uh, like so. Uh, so I do think that the rom-com sort of dangerously start sending the message to women and men if they watch them that like it's just about finding the right person. Yeah. It's just about finding someone who's going to warm up to your pot smoking. It's just about finding the guy that's going to understand that you love your job. You know what I mean? Like it's like the the expectation that our partners are going to be so malleable that they accept everything that we do. I don't think that's what you actually want in a romantic And that's why Alison Brie, she's not strong enough in herself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean he really teaches her to love herself which is as evidenced by the the bottle like you know of him showing her what a vagina looks like and all that kind of stuff and on this podcast unlike every other we'll play a (laughs) clip of that oh nice the biggest misconception that guys have about the clitoris uh if they can find it is that they're too nice to it okay Uh like that's the problem i mean you know the trick is to be a little rude to the clitoris okay yeah just go to town on this little motherfucker right here you just like you're just you know so that's the dirty dj you know like you're scratching a record you know another great thing about this movie is a scene with an extremely funny person just being funny so billy eichner talking at a sex addicts meeting five lines yeah. and they just made me crazy. Here they here they are. I embrace my past. Yes, I did once call one of my neighbors in the middle of the day when he was at work and said, grab some condoms and meet me at that delicious soft pretzel place. Who cares? I did let someone put a protein bar up my ass once. Big deal. I did hack into my supermarket's Instagram account and posted a picture of my asshole and said there was a sale on asshole. And then said, come and lick my asshole if you're bald. You have these funny people, Sudeikis, SNL, yeah. Billy Eichner. How much do you say you go with it? I do it a lot. Yeah. I do it a lot, honestly. And I think it's like, you know, I think part uh, it helps that, you know, I just don't really have a lot of my ego wrapped up in my script. I have a lot of my ego wrapped up in my movie, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, like, I don't think that my joke's the best joke. I, re- I never have. I've always been very actor-based, even in theater. So, like... You know, I'll be cutting stuff because I'm like, you're. It, uh, you don't need to say that. You, you're doing it in your performance. You know, and so improv and comedy, I feel the same way. I'm just like, I know. would imagine audiences, given that I see what they watch, I know what I like, I know what people I know like, I watch HBO, would be totally unfazed by what some critics have called the raunch factor, and yet still. The critics seem nonplussed by it. It's a little yeah, weird, right? It's a little real. Tw- 2015. You know what it is, too? Is You're that writing I think... for Rolling Stone. You're talking about the raunch factor? You're right. kidding me? It, which it, this yeah. film really doesn't have. I mean, it, it's really like, you know, it is like that Amy Schumer joke where she's like, you know, I think the reason I'm labeled as a sex comic is because I'm a woman. She was like, if I were a man, I think, I mean, Louis C.K. has sex with a beautiful woman on almost every episode of his show. Do you know what I mean? And no one at, talks about... It's all about what a beautiful meditation on failure and like when a woman writes about it or when Amy does what she does, it does become how raunchy. Louis gets the word maybe raunchy, but it's made the sixth adjective applied to him. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. when yeah. a character like Louis is debased, we all assume that he's the author of that. Yes. When yes, it's yes, a female yes. character, we all feel a little protective of her. And maybe if it's a Judd Apatow movie, we should. I mean, I love Jab- Judd Apatow. I don't want to, you know, call him out. But when it's your movie, no, we I shouldn't. Mean, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin is like 
probably the best romantic comedy in the last 15 years. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, he's really, really a genius, you know, like, and really reinvented it in a way. It, once you had, there's something about Mary, the rom-com became so male-driven. And Apatow is really instrumental in being the person that injected heart back into that instead of just the comedy. I do think that I tried to make a movie about my own sort of emotional turmoil and my own loneliness and my inability to form a relationship with with another person. And it's been labeled a, a sex comedy, which I, 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 I think is is fine. You know, I mean, I'm just happy to be here. You know, I'm ha- I like the podcast, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it's like I started listening. If it I gets was, you into our baffled. Yeah, hot I mean, room, it's like, you know, here it. we are, you know, like I was listening. <laughs> to um I got turned on to you guys because I was obsessed with cereal and and the the please don't let this be a meditation on the nature of truth and I was like who is this guy and I was like you know so I started listening after that but I I think that the more that I have the amazing opportunity of being a female filmmaker and being a female writer in this business the more I realize that it is going the way of the video game industry which is that the more you are not a white male the more the harder it's becoming I think the fact that every time <laughs> Kristen Wiig does a movie, it's considered a female comedy is possibly one of the worst things that could po- like you could call anything. Like, I, I, let me just put it this way. The number one comedy ever made that anyone, like if you ask anybody, is Tootsie, right? Mm-hmm. Like anybody would agree it's probably Tootsie. Yeah. Tootsie I think is on a, AFI's list, it was uh, Some Like It Hot Then Tootsie. Some right? Like It Hot yeah. Then Tootsie. Yeah. By the way, both those movies, those are female-centric movies. Yeah. If I pitched that right now, it would be a female-centric movie. Even if a man pitched that movie, it would still be considered a female-centric movie. Yeah, and to they call, go, okay, female-centric movie, okay, we could get Paul Feig to direct. We could get Paul Feig to direct. <laughs> then, then it becomes so, you're just sidelined. And I said, I wrote this thing for The Hollywood Reporter when I, about last night came out that I was like, anytime you do that, you're sidelining someone's success. Like, you're basically going, like, if it's not Easy Riders Raging Bulls, then this isn't a trend. It's a fad. Mm-hmm. It's something that happened that's weird, that's going to be its own little article on deadline, and that's it. Unless it's a bunch of white guys doing it, it's not considered a movement. It's not considered a cinematic movement. I mean, just watch, like, any uh, documentary on film ever. Like, there are no female filmmakers. There are no, you know, filmmakers of color. Like, it's just, it's so amazing that, like... We live in 2015 and, like, Viola Davis just won an Emmy. Like, that is just, like, mind-blowing to me. Like, it's amazing. It's amazing to be here and to be a part of it and just to know that, like, in my lifetime I will probably make no uh, significant movements forwards for women in film. Like, like nothing will happen. Like, I will continue to make the movies that I make. I will probably go to television because they don't want me there. Mm-hmm. I think it was 7% of the top... 250 films last year were directed by women and that will be this the percentage of that will be the same this year it will be the same next year it will be the same out year after that i'm not sanguine but i would just say a couple things probably sandra day o'connor said all right when's the next female supreme court justice gonna be <laughs> you know now there's three and it is profit driven so like eventually a capitalist might figure out Give the gigs to the best people, not just the best men. Yeah, maybe, maybe. maybe. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, how long has film been around? A hundred years? Mm-hmm. And that percentage hasn't changed. Being a filmmaker is just considered male in the same way that, like, you know, being a programmer is considered male. Like, the same way that, like, you know, sending men into battle is considered male. Like, it's just a... And anytime there is... A, the only thing that I would say to that is that anytime there... I, I also was 
firmly believed that before I made money. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I was like, well, I mean, if if I make money, then or if my stuff makes money, then I'll be rewarded. And it's yeah. like, no, 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 you'll be rewarded as a female. Yeah. The guys that I went to NYU with and that have made maybe that are probably that I would say are my peers are directing Spider-Man, the Kong prequel. These are people I know personally. Yeah. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. I have a pilot deal at Amazon. Do you know what I mean? Like, like not Amazon, <laughs> but like, I mean, I just mean like, you know what I mean? Wait, like, do you, it's mean, like, you mean their drone program? Oh, yeah, no, yeah, 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 their drone oh, program. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, that that's kind of pilot, me. yeah. That's me. That's the non-pilot deal. Yeah, 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 Hey, listen, on the other hand, this is a really funny movie. You do great work <laughs> and you could be cursed by having to make a conga prequel. Oh, God, yeah, that could be the like, worst thing ever. He's a chimp? <laughs> what? I don't know. He's young, he's young. Leslie, I think we could probably talk forever I, and I really enjoyed the people next to us could hear us without microphones. Yeah, that's true. Thanks so much. Thank you. The EPA and local Ohio officials have repeatedly said that their tests show that air quality in the area of East Palestine, Ohio, is safe and that the chemicals there should dissipate. As of Sunday, officials have tested air in 578 homes, and they say chemical pollution levels have not exceeded residential air quality standards. So that was all from CNN. That was a Almost verbatim quote, I added East Palestine so that you would know what I'm talking about. But here's the headline of that piece. High levels of chemicals could pose long-term risks at Ohio train derailment site, researchers say. So yeah, the researchers do say that. We also heard in the piece the EPA officials and government officials who don't discount the idea that there could be a risk, but haven't found that there's any. One researcher from Carnegie Mellon, the main guy quoted about one chemical, found that it was at higher levels than is usually acceptable, but they're not sure what that means. And then they quote the guy saying, it's not elevated to the point where it's necessarily like an immediate evacuate the building health concern. Let me say this about what may happen, what may ultimately happen with this, one of the biggest stories of the year, this train derailment outside of East Palestine. I mean, I know we're two months in, but it definitely has been dominating the news. I've talked about it a few times. So can't put any odds or numbers to this prediction. It's not even a prediction. It's just something that very well could happen, which is that the total consequence of all of this could be that some people get some headaches for a while. Oh, sure. There was a train crash. That's bad for Norfolk Southern and the people on the freight train. Certainly, it's not pleasant for the people next door, and they're very worried. That's real. But let's compare that and what we do know and what we can document to the coverage. Here's ABC's David Muir, World News Tonight. We turn next here tonight to the major news from federal investigators in that toxic train derailment in Ohio. Tonight, the head of the NTSB now says that derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, was, quote, 100% preventable. So I was the lead anchor of the most watched news broadcast reporting on the phrase that made headlines everywhere, 100% preventable. Muir threw to the reporter right up top. Within a minute of Muir, he aired this quote. Tonight, the NTSB was blunt as it delivered its initial findings into that train derailment and toxic spill in East Palestine, Ohio. This was 100% preventable. We know for a fact that this derailment occurred at car number 23. So we heard there from Jennifer Hamandy, who is the NTSB safety chair. We heard her saying 100% preventable. That's stark. That's blunt. 
And we heard the quote is 100% preventable. We know this derailment occurred at car 23. Now, those two sentences that you heard right there back to back as if they were one thought were not. They occurred within two minutes of each other or two minutes apart. That's fine. Media does this all the time. I've done it. We can't play a four minute quote in a 22 minute newscast. It's important to bring two distinct thoughts. It doesn't represent anything the speaker said. However, if you were to hear the entire context of the 100% preventable quote, maybe you'd think it was something less of a headline than was portrayed. And not just as portrayed by ABC, also The Guardian, CNN, local newscasts. That was the headline. Here's the rest of what Hammondy had to say. This was 100% preventable. We call things accidents. There is no accident. Every single event that we investigate is preventable. So it's preventable insofar as there is no event that's not preventable. I'm not saying this framing renders the pronouncement of preventable as meaningless, but it does wash away the distinctiveness of the meaning. Now, Hamandi did come across like a real great public servant. She didn't do anything wrong. And it's probably good in to some degree that she has this all mistakes are preventable mindset. But knowing what we know, that she thinks everything is preventable, and also knowing that the toxic spill, though toxic, may not have any long-term effects, how are we sure that really anything happened here that's that much different from the thousand plus derailments that happen with trains every year? This story doesn't even have that much of a right-left balance. I know Fox would like to make it so, but mostly it's this picture of these piled up train cars and black smoke and the inability to look away, the unwillingness. No one in media wants to be the entity that doesn't pay attention to this issue that people are very concerned about and could well prove to be quite serious, could prove to be. We shouldn't look away. We shouldn't ignore it. But every time you don't look away, in other words, you train your focus on one thing, you're not looking at something else. And I think there's a lot of things to look at in America. Like, I don't know, to take one example, 100,000 opioid overdoses. No billowing smoke there, I know, but those overdoses also are all preventable. Crews in East Palestine are expected to begin clearing the still present rail cars from the tracks any day now. That's the Saturday show. Corey Juarez, the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer, and we will talk to you on Monday.